Psalm 71, 18. Stones litter the stage today, as you can see, and they have a story to tell. If these stones could speak, uh, they would, and they will today. My name's Luke. Hello, everyone. Uh, everyone gathered at all, all of our four campuses at Bel Air and Edgewood and Abingdon in the rain. Are you, are you awake today? You like make some noise or something? Like you're alive? Today, everybody's got wet shoulders and hair coming in today. We began the series, If These Stones Could Speak, last week, encountering this incredible story from the Bible in the book of Joshua. Uh, God's people were heading toward the land that he had promised to give them, but there was this river standing in their way, a raging river at flood stage, rushing and, and gushing and foaming. And God said, put your foot in that river, and I will stop the flow of water. And that's exactly what they did. They stepped in. God stopped the flow of water. Everyone crossed safely to the other side. And God said, don't you ever forget what happened here. Go get some stones from the river and stack them up on the other side as a memorial so that when your children ask you, what do these stones mean, you'll have a story to tell about God's deliverance, God's uh, coming through for you. The stones were there to speak to generations to come, and they're still speaking today. Do you have a memorial stones in your life? Maybe not actual piles of stones, but something that when you look at it, it speaks with power about something that happened in the past. Maybe it's a degree on the wall that says, you did it. Or it's a hospital bracelet that you keep. It's cut, telling the story of healing. Or you've got a, a treasured relic from a lost loved one that speaks to their impact on your life. Or a picture, it's full of smiling faces because it was taken after the tragedy, after the difficulty, after the darkness. It says, God came through, God redeemed. A memorial from the past that can still speak with power in the, presence to, in the present to say, God ain't done with me yet. Stones can speak like that. Our church is built with those kind of stones, those kind of stories. Last week, we got to celebrate several of the recent ones that have come as a result of Unleashed Love. If that's not something you're familiar with, there's booklets we gave them out last week. They're still available. Uh, so you can find out more. Uh, Unleash Love, uh, in a nutshell, is something that describes what God is calling our church to now in, in this moment. But it also is something very personal for each one of us. As I think about God's love unleashed to me, how am I being called to let that flow through me? How can I offer the best of who I am and the best of what I have for God's purpose through this church. God's not done with me yet. God's not done with us yet. And thankfully, we get to see evidence of that, see evidence of God continuing to work and heal and lead and bless and love and redeem and restore in ways that only God can do. In fact, we get an opportunity to share another story, another example of God doing what God does in the lives of mountain people. Take a look at this video. Hi, my name is Bobby. This is my wife, Denise. We've been going to Edgewood campus for two and a half years. What brought me to Mountain was I had other family that were going here. I had three cousins that were here at Mountain. Um, and when Bobby and I got together, um, I started bringing him. I was kind of scared because, you know, I hadn't been to church in a while, um, but it was welcoming. Um, I can feel a spirit going on in the, you know, 
and just being at Edgewood was really nice, and so I decided to stick with her and go, with, go to Edgewood with her. One of the ways I'm involved with Mountain is men's small groups, and what I get out of the small groups are just dealing with people, my wife, um, just seeing how the other men do things totally different than I was doing at one point in my life. Before meeting Denise and coming to Mountain, I was pretty much a mess. Was married before. Um, uh, quick marriage, fast marriage, fast divorce. It didn't, it didn't last long. My life was in a shambles. Now, from on the outside looking in, it didn't look like it was a shambles, but it was a shambles. I think the first time I met my wife, um, I, could, I could tell it was a lot of hurt in her. I had been with my first husband. We'd been married for 18. We'd been together for 20 years. We actually separated like three times during our marriage. The last one finally stuck. And then I came across a group called Unintended Journey. And that totally made a huge difference in my life today. Um, when Bobby and I did first get together, it was it was still a struggle. Even though I knew I was listening to God and this was what I was supposed to do, he wasn't quite the man that I thought I should have as a husband. I prayed every day <laughs> that things would change. And that day finally came in June when he finally accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And he got baptized in August. That was like one of the happiest days of my life. And he's been a totally different man. Edgewood is like the first church I ever went to that I really felt like I wanted to go and I wanted to be a part of it, and I wanted to change my life. Um, it was great, great feeling. I felt, you know, brand new. I'm looking forward to being that man that I should always been. Um, I, I'm looking for a better marriage, help my marriage, uh, work as hard as I can with my marriage and the family. I want to see Edgewood grow, and I want to be a part of it um, as a family. I really want our whole family, our children, everybody to be a part of it. I'd like to thank Mountain for everything they've done for me. I was a broken woman, and without Mountain, I would not be where I am today. And there are a lot of good groups here. Um, if you need help with anything, or even just getting involved in a small group can really make all the difference in the world. Brand new, yeah. I felt brand new. A new lease on life because of an encounter with God in this community. The stones of this church speak. That's the kind of thing that happens here. We get to be a part of that. Uh, this series is going to have a way of bringing together past, present, and future as we listen for what stones, both ancient and modern, have to say to us. And I invite us now to actually shift, to look backward, listen for uh, something beyond just mountains history even, to a place where uh, there were some stones once scattered about something like this. Now, this scene doesn't look like this anymore. The stones have been kicked around, walked over, buried. But the world has been given the opportunity to remember what happened here. Uh, it's a very well-known place, a temple, the temple from the Bible's perspective, a magnificent structure and sacred place, the, the foundations of which are still there in Jerusalem. I've been there. 
It was the site of so many scenes from the Bible, the significant feature of the landscape and of the story of God's people. It, it was the place where God lived. It's where he would meet with his people. It's like God had an address and he could be found here. And people came from far and wide to have an encounter with the almighty creator God, the holy God. He could be experienced here. And in the book of John, chapter 8, there was an experience that people would not soon forget. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up there. John chapter 8. John 8. Uh, you might have a Bible that looks like this. There's pages in this Bible, like a real, real Bible. You can do it on, on your phone if you want. If you're, so there's this curious thing we got to probably point out. If you're going there, actually the last verse of chapter 7 through the eight, excuse me, the 11th verse of chapter 8, it's kind of bracketed off in your Bible. You'll notice that probably even if you're reading it online. Maybe the italicized text and a note about why that is. So we, we got to talk about that. Uh, it maybe seems academic, but anyone who's reading the Bible is going to wonder why is this here. So I try not to give an academic answer, but more of a minimalist uh, approach for now. Okay? Uh, the ancient world was largely paperless. A lot of us trying to go paperless these days, but they, they were paperless as in they didn't have no paper. All right? It was very rare and inexpensive, quite different from us. Right? Here, here's what we got to understand. The Bible emerged in an oral society. Not nearly as many people could read and write. Uh, verbal communication carried a lot more weight. It meant a lot more. Like we think today, like it, does, it didn't count. It didn't even happen if it's not written down. That's not the way the world worked 2,000 years ago. That's not the way that people thought. Uh, in keeping with the standards of the day, the accounts that are now recorded in the Bible were first passed on through the oral tradition from one person, one generation to the next. Like the story of crossing the river. That story was told out working in the field, walking along the road, gathered around the dinner table. That's how God's story lived on. Eventually, certain people with the right education and the right resources would collect those stories and copy them down on something like paper. And because there were no copy machines, they would copy them over and over again so they could be shared more widely and God's story could continue to live on and have an even broader impact. That's how we got the Bible. God's people had a message and they capitalized on new forms of technology to ensure that that message could be shared as broadly as possible. For them, ink and papyrus, uh, video screens and uh, internet for us, right? So here's the deal with John 8. Uh, it's bracketed off in your Bible because the earliest copies that we have of the book of John don't have this story in it right here. It seems clearly part of the oral tradition of Jesus because it exists in other copies of other New Testament books in different places. So it's a Jesus story. There's just some question and debate about where exactly it fits in the whole Jesus story, okay? But for today, we're, we're going to leave it as it lies, uh, take it as it comes, and listen uh, for what it would speak to us because it is one of the most uh, defining moments of Jesus' life. You know, I was thinking, I tend to like my Jesus in the same way that I like my salsa or barbecue sauce. Mild. Yeah, I'm a mild. I can't do all that hot stuff. Or better yet, make it sweet, like sugar it up a little bit to suit my taste. Okay? Now, you might order something different from Buffalo Wild Wings, but what about when it comes to Jesus? Do you like mild Jesus? Do you like a Jesus that you can put in your pocket, hang on the end of a chain, take around with you wherever you go, except when it's more convenient to leave him at home? A Jesus that just sort of fits nicely and neatly into your life. Doesn't ever disagree with you, doesn't ever redirect, doesn't talk back. Maybe like bobblehead Jesus there on the dashboard just nodding along with you every turn you take. 
Sometimes that's what I, I want Jesus to be, mild Jesus. But that Jesus is not found in the book of John. In the book of John, just like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's this collection of snapshots of Jesus' life and his interactions with all different kind of people. And what we so often see is that other people are constantly wanting to fit Jesus into their program. Jesus, we've got a category for you. We've got a compartment for you. Just fit into it. Mild Jesus. Make life sweeter, not harder. Don't overpower our tastes. But Jesus didn't come to kowtow to people's expectations of him. He was quite confident in who he was and what he came to do. Son of almighty God, creator God, now in the flesh, here to give light to a dark world, to call all people to himself, to give living water to the thirsty, bread of life to the hungry. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came to say to the world, get with the program. God's program. But people weren't always ready to do that. I mean, we're not always ready to do that. The book of John records this very hotly contested period in Jesus' life. He's a quite polarizing figure, actually. We got this going on all over the place. People run into one extreme or the other, dividing over everything. That's the way it was with Jesus. He would teach, and some would buy in, and others would walk away. He'd perform a miracle. Some would say, praise God. Others would say, he's got a demon. There was a lot of grumbling about Jesus among the crowds. Some argued, he's a good man. And others said, he's nothing but a fraud, and he deceives the people. There's this obvious tension. And you know who had the most difficulty with Jesus? The religious people, like the the church-type people. Here's the problem. They were holding on to a firm understanding of how the world worked. And that is that if a person practices their religion well, God would favor them. Not only that, but religion can be used as a tool to advance one's status within the community and increase their honor. It can become a way of defining myself over against others who who don't quite do it as well as I do it. Religion can be played to my advantage to actually give me a certain power and privilege over other people. It helps me be in control. It serves me well. It helps me get what I want out of life. If I do it and do it well, it comes with the reassurance that God is on my side and the confidence that I am right and good. And really, we all want that. Religious or not, we want to know that the lifestyle we've chosen, that the way we're doing life is right and good. Religious or not, we all have beliefs about what is right and good. And we spend a lot of our time convincing ourselves and other people that we're right and good. Our perspective is the right one. Our political views are the good ones. Our beliefs put us in the right group. Our behavior is deemed acceptable to God, if there is a God. I define myself according to these choices, and I hold on to them in defense of my righteousness. And I'll use that word. It's kind of a church-sounding word, but you don't have to go to church to believe yourself righteous. You just think you live right. What are you holding on to that tells you you are living right, that defines you as good, the way you vote, whether you kneel or stand, your status in the world, admirations for, admiration from others, a comparison with your neighbor, or 
What are you holding on to that tells you you're bad and wrong? Past mistakes? The voices of others? Your view of God? And who is God anyway? What does he have to say about who's right and good? The people in Jesus' day were sure they had it figured out. That they had so much confidence in themselves that they were on the right track. The religion told them so. And they wanted mild Jesus, bobblehead Jesus, to just nod along and tell them they were right. Affirm their position. Confirm their perspective. Jesus, surely if you were a man of God, you would attest to the rest. We're the best and God bless. No contest. But Jesus was not impressed. He didn't come to reinforce a religion. He came to reveal the God that is hiding somewhere beneath all that religious facade. And in the process, he called into question everything the people were holding on to about their identity, about their beliefs and how the world worked and what's right and good and who God is. You see, Jesus associated with people who were, according to their religion, not living right or doing good. Jesus claimed this authority to forgive sin and declare people right with God that was not at all consistent with the beliefs they were holding on to about how that whole getting right with God thing worked. And what's more, Jesus would claim that the way they were practicing their religion was actually keeping them from God's favor, keeping them from being right and good. And this was annoying to the religious leaders. Nobody wants to have their their identity called into question. Their whole approach to life challenged. It's annoying. Like hot sauce burning your mouth. You can't even taste your food. Jesus is like hot sauce. There's a metaphor for you. Somebody can market that, right? So the religious leaders came up with a plan to destroy Jesus. These stones speak about how that plan unfolded. John chapter 8. Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives, but he came back at dawn and appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. The law was the thing by which they defined themselves. We can find the particular law they're referring to. It's in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. God was there defining what holiness meant for his people. Be holy as I am holy, he said to his people. Other people, other nations have no regard for my holiness. They have no respect for the life, for the bodies that I have given them. Don't be like that. Purge what is evil. God takes sin seriously. The religious leaders are building off of this. Jesus can't be God unless he too takes sin seriously. Here's how we'll find out. We've trapped him. He's either got to side with us and fit into our program or be exposed as a fraud in front of all the people. One question comes to mind observing all of this. Where's the man? The law that they're referring to says that both the man and the woman are guilty and deserving of punishment in the case of adultery, but only the woman is dragged in. The more vulnerable of the two, 
It's a man's world, after all. Men are running this scheme, and the Bible exposes a flaw in their plan. It says that they were using this whole thing as a trap, a ploy, leveraging their religion, their law, to their advantage, using this woman to advance their self-interest. That's not why the law was given. The law was for justice, to make sure the right things happened among God's people. It wasn't supposed to be used as a weapon against the vulnerable. That's not the heart of God. That's not the heart of God's law. But it is, evidently, the heart of these religious leaders. They don't care about justice. They only want to justify themselves and maintain their grip on their position as better than everyone else. And this, who knows, naked woman that they dragged through the streets provided convenient leverage. So there they are. They have all the witnesses they need in this half-cocked court where Jesus is really the one now on trial. Do you know, though, what their law says about what happens to malicious witnesses? It's not good. You may not know that, but they would have. And Jesus did, too. Jesus bent down and began to ride on the ground. And when they kept questioning him, he he stood up and he said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bent down and began to ride on the ground. Life is simpler when I can focus on what other people have done wrong. It's just easier when other people's sin is the center of attention. When when I can shine the spotlight on all the bad that someone else has done, my badness remains in the shadows, and I just prefer it that way. Everything about the flow and the focus of this event in John 8 is aimed by the religious leaders at the badness of this woman with the hope that it would shed some light on something bad in Jesus as well. Everything's focused there. Crowd worked into a frenzy, stones in hand, everybody posting venom on social media until Jesus halts that momentum and says, if you're going to do this, make sure you examine yourself first. Jesus gives the verdict, stone her. Just make sure you're a qualified witness. At which point the women's accusers and masterminds of this plan to trap Jesus now find themselves trapped by the law that defines them. This thing that they have so often used as a weapon to judge other people now stands in judgment against them as malicious witnesses guilty of the same punishment that their stones intended to inflict on this woman. Jesus was not content to nod along while they convinced themselves how much better they were than everyone else how much different they were from all those other evil people out there. Jesus is not going to be used as a stirrup to boost them onto their high horse. And Jesus is not going to do that for any of the rest of us either. All of the things that we're so proud of, 
our status, the, the fact that we go to church, or we're not as bad as the next person, or we've done more good things than someone else, or we vote the right way, or we've never done that, or we come from the right family, or we've got the right education. We think these things are important in defining who we are, and we assume mild Jesus thinks the same thing. We clutch an identity built on comparisons with other people. Right, Jesus? Doesn't this make sense to you? Doesn't all this justify me? Not along. Everyone in the crowd that day with, with a stone in their hand thinks the same way. And here's the thing. The woman at the center of it all, she would have thought the same way too. She stands condemned. She knows it. Everybody knows this is the way the world works. She was caught in the act. There is nothing to justify her. See, flip it now. Maybe you can relate better to her. Maybe the thing you're holding on to and burdened by is all the things you're ashamed of. The things you've seen, the things you've done, the things been done to you. You committed that sin. You failed that many times. Your list is somehow worse than others. You too tend to think that Jesus believes these are the things that are most important in defining who you are. Your identity is also built on comparisons with other people, but it's just so obvious that you don't measure up. Right, Jesus? Of course that makes sense to you. Of course that condemns me. You must be nodding along. That's what the woman expected. That's what everyone there with a stone in their hand expected. So we expect My understanding of myself as right and good gives me the right to punish those who are bad and wrong. Gives me the right to lash out at them in anger. Gives me the right to take shots at them from behind a screen. Gives me the right to to judge those people without empathy because they're nothing like me. We're so sure of the vast difference between those who are obviously good and those who are obviously bad until Jesus speaks and puts everyone in the same category, on the same level. Let any one of you who is unique from this woman Any one of you who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone. At this, those who had heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Everyone gathered at the temple that day stood condemned. And everyone gathered at the temple that day left free. Everyone gathered at the temple that day was forced to come face to face with their sin. Acknowledge it in the presence of others and in the presence of Jesus. And everyone experienced God's grace. Everyone goes away with a new lease on life. These stones tell that story. And they answer some questions for us. 
They were left at the temple, the, the, the place where God meets his people. What happens when sin is exposed before God? When the sin of God's people, when our sin, our pride, our lust, our greed, our hate, our deceit, when we bring all of that right up onto God's doorstep, what happens? It's judged for what it is. It's sin. It defies God's holiness, all of it. Not, not some more than others. Jesus gave the verdict. She was guilty. But it turns out Jesus was the only qualified witness left. And the law says no one can be condemned on account of only one witness. So he tells her to go and not, no, you didn't do anything wrong, but go and sin no more. The verdict was given. Everyone sinned. The punishment was withheld. The stones were dropped. The only one who could throw them didn't. Stones left lying on the ground there tell us something important about what happens when our sin is exposed before God. And they also call to mind another story. For it would not be long after that when another similar ruckus broke out, only this time the one dragged in front of the crowd and being used to further the self-interest of the religious leaders was Jesus himself. He was surrounded and stripped and gathered in front of people with weapons in their hands. An easy scapegoat for everyone. All the attention focused on Jesus and now he's ruining what they thought they knew about God. He's causing an uproar. He's uh, defying the religious establishment. He's a threat to the power structures of the day. He has to be destroyed. But in this case, no one was there to defend him. In this case, no one was there to speak up and say, let the one who has no sin be the first to throw a blow. And so they did to him what they intended to do to the woman. They beat him and they left him on a cross hanging to die. And again, the only one who was qualified to throw stones didn't. The only one able to condemn didn't. Even though everyone at this half-cocked court already stood condemned, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. In the presence of God and all the people, sin was judged for what it is. But the punishment for that sin, the punishment withheld from the woman and all those like her, was placed on him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. At the cross, just like that day at the temple, everyone walks away free. Everyone experiences God's grace. Everyone goes away with a new lease on life. What are you holding on to that would keep you from that freedom? Is it some things that you're proud of? The ways that you're better than others? Your, your own understanding of yourself, uh, the reasons why you're a good person, the system that you've worked out in your mind about how God dispenses favor to you and your kind, but not to those people. Is that the perspective you bring into conversations about race and politics and heaven and hell? Is that what kind of forms your posture when you espouse your opinions on social media? Are you holding on to an identity of yourself as someone distinguished from all those people? 
Are you constantly holding on to your own innocence in every situation, uh, blaming someone else, all while your sin goes unexamined and you remain unable to empathize with those who are different from you, unable to give or receive grace? Is it worth holding on to your pride? In a polarized world, would Jesus' people be the ones who are always holding on to their righteousness, always condemning, blaming others without a, without a hint of empathy or grace? Or, or for anyone who, who feels like the woman, is it worth holding on to your shame? To, to an identity as someone who's distinguished from all the people who got it figured out or, or all the people who are more deserving than you or all the people who are better than you. I, I know for me, the one thing I, I hold on to is apparently this image of myself as having been a perfect child. Um, I don't throw stones at my kids, but... I do, I go through periods where I'm so annoyed by their imperfection. And everything I say to them is just seasoned with that annoyance. I, I talk like I never made a mess. I never disobeyed. I never talked back or I never threw a tantrum. I just, I so often, I just lack empathy. And these stones don't tell me to judge that kind of behavior as right or or, or acceptable, but they do at least call me to examine myself and empathize with my children before acting rashly, speaking harshly, punishing quickly. I gotta drop that. Let's be a community that doesn't hold on to stuff like that. Let's be a community that doesn't hold on to an opinion of ourselves as right and good or bad and wrong. Let's hold on to Jesus. Let's let Jesus form our identity. Jesus, who recognizes our sin and calls us to recognize our sin for what it is, but who says to us, I do not condemn you. Let's let that be the most important thing about us. That will form our identity. Let's let that shape the way we approach God and the way that we interact with all the other sinners we gotta interact with every day. Let's live in the joy that God's grace and love abounds to us so that it can be unleashed through us. Because we're witnesses, right? If you're hearing the story, you're a witness. You're a qualified witness. These stones are witnesses that in the place, in the place where God, creator God, holy God, in the place where God meets his people, the ground is level. And Jesus is there defending the prideful and the ashamed. His grace is for everyone. His grace is for you but you gotta drop what you're holding on to.